Look with me again to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, a passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago and need to look at again. Luke 22, beginning at verse 28. Interesting sermon title, eh? The Devil Reconsidered. So let's read this and then let's... Let's think about the devil. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, The rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, until you deny three times that you know me. This is God's word for his people. So let's ask God by his spirit to come and help us. Lord, we do ask you again. We ask you this every week and we ask you again that you would come by your spirit. You've given us your word, but Uh, But honestly, Lord, we know your word isn't enough. We need your spirit to open our eyes and open our hearts and to cause your word to live. We need your spirit to press these things deep into our souls. And so come, Lord Jesus, and marry your spirit to your word, that by it our hearts might be changed, we might be changed. We ask in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Four and a half years ago or so, we moved into this building, and um, I started to preach through Paul's letter to the Romans. And Romans has been a staple for us for the last four and a half years. We've We've been away from it, we come back to it, and we're going to come back to it again after we finish this business with Peter. But I remember saying on the first Sunday that we were in this building and in that first sermon from Romans that when you read the Bible, you step out of a world that is familiar and into a world that is very different. You step out of a world that is very familiar and into a world that is very different. The names are different. The places are different. The book itself is different. Uh, It does tell a story. There is an unfolding and glorious story. It is the never-ending story. It is the story, the story, of which all other stories are cheap imitations, as good as they might be. Great expectations might be a great story. Tale of Two Cities might be a great story. 
Les Mis might be a great story, but their greatness has to do with the fact that they're knockoffs. And they take bits and pieces of the true story. And with those bits and pieces, good authors tell good stories. But this is the true story. And yet it's not like any other book. Because it's not a book that works the way other books seem to work. It's different. And the thing that is most different about the Bible is how it views reality. The Bible views reality differently. I mean, think about it. Do you hear Wolf Blitzer or Shepard Smith or Charlie Rose or David Letterman attempting to make sense of the world in which we live in terms of a raging conflict between two unseen powers? Not me. I mean, as real as the conflict is in the Ukraine, as real as the conflict is in Syria, as real as conflicts are in the Middle East, as real as intelligence agents involved in covert espionage operations, as real as all of that is, that's not the whole of reality, is it? And when you step into the Bible, you're stepping into a world that is very, very different from the world of CNN and Fox News. We were reminded of that wonderfully last weekend. Wonderfully. And that is exactly how Jesus casts the events of his final days. In fact, Jesus casts the events of his entire ministry And Jesus casts the events of Peter's life in these last hours before Jesus' betrayal and death in precisely those kinds of terms. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded, but I. Satan has demanded, but I. There they are. The two great antagonists. The two great antagonists. One unseen, the other seen, but while seen, clearly enabled, empowered, and preserved by his Father who is unseen. We looked at this passage two weeks ago and essentially made one point, and the point is this you have an enemy. The church has an enemy. You and I have an enemy. Simon, Simon, Satan. The adversary, the accuser, the liar, the deceiver, the destroyer. Satan has demanded to sift you. And the you, if you'll remember from two weeks ago, the you in the text at verse 31 is plural. He's speaking to Peter. He's speaking to Peter as the representative of the twelve but Satan wants to devour the twelve, and it is the twelve, the disciples of Jesus, representing the church to whom Jesus is speaking. The church has an enemy. And as we said two weeks ago, he is an implacable enemy. New word to the vocabulary 
of some of you. Implacable, cannot be placated, cannot be appeased. There's nothing you can say to him. There's nothing you can do. He is the ultimate terrorist. He cannot be reasoned with. He is implacable. And he is bent upon the destruction of God's people and God's purposes. That was the one point. Now I want to think some additional thoughts with you about that this morning. And here's the first of them. The first of them is that you take seriously that you have a real enemy. You have a real enemy. That you not allow CNN, Fox News, Wolf Blitzer, Shepard Smith interpret reality for you. I'm stealing, again, some thunder from last weekend. But let me steal some thunder from Sasan, who encouraged us to look beyond news reports, to look beneath the surface of things, and to see the world differently. There is another story being written. And in this, I'm encouraging you to do the same. You have a real enemy. Now, why do I press this? Well, I press this for a couple of reasons. One, we can become numb to the reality. C.S. Lewis made the observation we we can make two mistakes with respect to the devil. We can exaggerate his importance. We can talk about him too much, which doesn't seem to be our problem. And we can underestimate him and not talk about him enough. It's trying to find that place, the place the scriptures have found, as we talk about the devil that we're trying to do. The devil is real, and we can minimize him, even though we may believe in him. But I'm concerned about another thing, and I'm concerned about those of us who might dismiss this altogether who might just dismiss this. And if, if you are one who is inclined to do that, if you are one who is inclined to dismiss the reality of a personal evil, a Satan, a devil, it really is to you that I want to speak. And my concern is, as we think about this, that we are more shaped and influenced by our worldview than we might realize. What's a worldview? Well, if you turn the words around, it kind of gives you a definition. It's a way of viewing the world. It's the way you see the world in which you live. And, And in that worldview and beneath that worldview, there are assumptions that are operative. And these assumptions are powerful, and they, and they shape how you think about the world, how you view the world, just like a computer has an operating system. It's there always working. It's always doing what it does, which enables, and I don't know stuff about computers except how to turn them on and, and hit keys and stuff like that, but there's an operating system that enables the computer to do all the stuff that it does. Assumptions about the world function like that. They're beneath the surface. And they shape how you think about reality. And sometimes you don't even know they're there. You don't even examine them. Because they're assumptions. And I've mentioned this before. 
But I'm going to mention it again because, again, if we don't step into the world of the Bible and view the world the way the Bible views the world, we're never going to understand history, all of history. We're never going to understand the life of the church. And frankly, folks, you're not going to understand your own Christian life. You're not going to have adequate categories for understand what is going on in your Christian life. And here are the assumptions. You've heard this before, those of you who have been around. These are two of several assumptions that are like the operating system in a computer. The first one is this. If it doesn't make sense to me, it isn't real. If it doesn't make sense to me, it isn't real. A black cartoon character with a long tail that ends in a point carrying a pitchfork around or something out of Dante, or something from a medieval work of art, or goblins, or ghoulish figures. So much superstition, right? So much myth, so much figure of speech. It doesn't make sense to me. It isn't logical. It isn't reasonable to think that there really is a personal devil of evil, an embodiment, if you will, of evil. It doesn't make sense to me, therefore it can't be real. You know what that is? That's rationalism. And it is a powerful influence in your worldview. If it doesn't make sense, it isn't real. And here's the other one. I can't see it, I can't feel it, I can't taste it, I can't hear it, I can't smell it, I can't weigh it, I can't measure measure it. Therefore, it isn't real and it isn't true. And that's empiricism. Rationalism and empiricism. The things upon which the whole scientific community rests the whole of its existence. And so by definition excludes from consideration anything that can't be reasoned from or to, can't be reasoned to, can't be weighed, can't be measured. Rationalism and empiricism. Doesn't make sense to me if I can't see it. Isn't true. Isn't real. Jesus assumes the reality of a personal devil. It's part of his worldview. So here's the challenge. Jesus assumes it. Jesus affirms it. Jesus assumes and affirms and declares that Peter, the twelve, and you and I have a vicious, implacable enemy who will not be appeased, who takes no prisoners. And so the question becomes this. Whose voice am I going to listen to? Whose voice am I going to listen to? Whose voice am I going to trust? Again, you've heard me say this ad nauseum. Am I going to listen at the end of the day to my own voice? Right? Because, Because look, when you distill everything down, folks, when you distill everything down, There are only two interpreters of reality. You or God. At the end of the day, there is either your voice, 
which will be the voice that interprets and makes declarations about reality. You may have good reasons. You may think you have good reasons. But you are the one who has those good reasons. And at the end of the day, either you interpret reality or a voice outside your own head interprets reality. It's either you or God. And here's my question to you. Which voice are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the voice which is clearly finite, which clearly does not know everything that there is to know? If we knew everything there was to know, we wouldn't keep sending satellites up into the atmosphere to look at other people and other nations. We wouldn't send explorers to Mars. We wouldn't do these things if we knew everything there was to know. We do not know everything. And, and I'll go toe-to-toe with anybody who wants to go to -to toe-to-toe with me about this. We are all flawed. You think you are way smarter than you are. which is a big problem for you. We are both finite and flawed. Folks, this is a pressing consideration, not just with respect to this issue of the the existence of a personal devil. It is a pressing issue with respect to everything in your life. Whose voice are you going to listen to at the end of the day? A finite and flawed voice or the voice of Almighty God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, who is neither of the things that you are. He is neither finite nor flawed. He is infinite in knowledge and wisdom and power and glory. And everything that he knows, he knows exactly, properly, and in proper proportion to everything else that he knows. Whose voice Will you listen to Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. So I ask you to think about that. Be honest with yourself about this. And press it not just at this point, this matter of having an enemy, but apply it to every area of your life. Whose voice are you going to listen to? So we have an enemy. And here's the second thing. And this is, this is profoundly encouraging because this enemy will take no prisoners. Again, he's the ultimate terrorist. Can't be reasoned with. You think you're sitting across from the table from some, having a meaningful dialogue, thinking that there is some sort of rapprochement, that there's some sort of reconciliation that's going to be effected here. Lies, manipulations, deceit. He is an implacable enemy. He takes no prisoners. But here's the second thing. He's on a very, very short leash. He's on a very short leash. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. Satan has demanded to have you. Demanded. Here's what the word means. It means to ask. This is great. It means to ask, to demand, to ask or beg for one's self, or to ask that a person be given up 
to another from the power of the former. That's the implication of the word. It is to beg that a person be given up to another from the power of the former. Demand. It's really kind of amazing, isn't it? Satan has demanded Peter to have you. But you see what's happening. You see what's happening. Satan has power. He clearly has power. We do not minimize that. And he has allies. The Apostle Paul writes about this in Ephesians 6. He has has power, he has allies, and he has schemes. Put on the whole armor of God. By the way, I was in a conversation recently with someone about this passage. And the thing that you need to understand as Paul encourages us to put on the whole armor of God, he really is encouraging us to put on Christ. He's encouraging us to clothe ourselves in Christ, who is our armor. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He has schemes. He has intelligence. He has plans. He has designs. He has motives. He has maneuvers. And he has allies. Ephesians 6.12 We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is this whole theme in the scriptures. I mean, we don't have time to trace it out, but there is this whole theme in the scriptures. And I've mentioned this, where you see what is being played out at the earthly level being reflected in the heavens. So that what goes on at the earthly level, in some sense, actually just mimics what is going on in the heavenly realms, in the unseen realms. There's this story in, during the days of King David when David asks the Lord, should I go up against the Philistines? And the Lord says, when you hear the sound of marching in the balsam trees, then go up, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. The sound of marching in the balsam tree. What's that? It's the same kind of thing we saw a few weeks ago when we thought about Elisha and his servant who was terrified as they're looking at the Assyrian army. Elisha's nonplussed. The servant is falling apart. Elisha prays that the eyes of the serpent would be opened and the serpent sees what? Chariots of fire filling the mountains. I've made this point four or five times. I'll make it one more and then I'll be done. There is an interwovenness to things. And whether you think about the Ukraine or you think about Syria, the whole Middle East or other places in the world, you must understand that there is more to each of those stories than meets the eye. But the devil who has allies, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places is on a very, very short leash. He has to ask for permission to sift Peter. He has to be granted permission to sift Peter. 
He cannot act as an independent agent. He may be demanding. He may be outrageous. He may be implacable. But he has no authority to act without permission. We sometimes... We sometimes have this impression that the world in which we live is dualistic, that there are these two virtually equal powers that are at odds with each other, the devil and Jesus, and the outcome is uncertain. Let's be clear about this. The devil knows things. He has strategies. But he is not omniscient. He does not know everything. There are indications in the Scriptures that he knows things. It's interesting, the revelation says that part of what enrages the devil is that he knows his time is short. That was a long time ago that John wrote that. That doesn't feel very short, does it? 2,000 years? Doesn't feel very short. But you know what the devil sees that we sometimes forget? He sees the span of eternity and he knows that any length of history is small and short when contrasted with the whole of eternity and he knows what is coming at the end of history, his final destruction. He knows things, but he's not omniscient. He is powerful, but he does not possess all power. He is a presence, but he is not everywhere present. We speak kind of loosely about this, and I get why we do it. I understand why we do it. We say, the devil is assaulting me, or the devil is assaulting so-and-so. Well, let me tell you something. At least as I read the scriptures and understand the very definite limitations of the devil, if he's assaulting somebody over here, he can't be assaulting somebody over here. There may be something else going on with principalities and powers. But you understand the point I'm making? There is only one in this antagonistic struggle who is everywhere present all of the time, and that is the God of heaven and earth. It is not the devil. So I don't know where he is, but he is somewhere somehow. And I know he has designs, and I know he has plans and schemes, and he has power. And we're warned about him. But he is not the equal of God, and he is on a very, very short leash. You see this, don't you? In the classic illustration of the life of Job. Don't you see this in Job's experience? He was Job a righteous man. You know the story. I don't need to tell the story. But I, but I want to point it out and remind you of it and underscore this point with it. That it is Satan who has to ask permission to touch Job. And he cannot act unless that permission is granted. He is on a very, very short leash. Can't touch Job's family can't touch Job's possessions, can't touch Job's health, can't touch anything apart from the permission of the one who possesses limitless power. He's on a very, very short leash. 
I would suggest to you, this would be a fun thing for us to talk about, I would suggest to you that not only is the devil on a very, very short leash, but because of the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, who is the King of glory and who has inaugurated his kingdom in the midst of the world, the evidence of which is the fact that he, through the preaching of the gospel, is disseminating the light of the gospel to the nations of the earth, gathering a people from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, a thing that did not happen before the appearing of Christ. The world was cloaked in darkness by virtue of the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, outpouring of the Spirit, by which he inaugurates his kingdom. Not only is the devil on a very, very short leash, at the end of that leash is a choker chain. And while still alive and around, and we're warned that he, Peter himself, warns us that the devil is like a lion roaming around seeking whom he may devour. Paul says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says, arm yourselves with Christ that you may be able to withstand and stand firm in the evil day. He's still running around. But I'd suggest to you that at the end of that leash is a choker chain and the devil's job is even more difficult now than it was before the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And if you want a passage that proves that point, I'll give you Matthew 12, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus tells this truth in the form of a parable or a picture depicting the devil as a strong man who has a house, and in the house are all of these goods. And Jesus asked the question, how is it possible to go into the strong man's house unless you first bind the strong man, and then when you have bound the strong man, you can go into the strong man's house and you can plunder his goods. So who's the strong man in the story? The devil is the strong man. What's the house? It's his kingdom. What are the goods in that house? People. And who is the stronger man who binds the strong man? Your Savior, Jesus. Your Savior, Jesus, who by his life, death, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Spirit, has bound the strong man and now is filling the earth with his gospel and rescuing his people out of the bondage in darkness and fear of death pressed upon them by the great adversary. And let me tell you, and this is where it would be fun to talk, it's the same word that is used in Revelation 20 and verse 2 to speak of the binding of Satan For a thousand years. Folks, the devil is real. We're warned about him. But he's on a very, very short leash, and at the end of that leash is a choker chain, and he's gasping for air. It doesn't look like it sometimes, does it? It doesn't feel like it sometimes. We heard last weekend 
about real evils, real darkness. But didn't we hear also about the wind of the Spirit blowing through the house of Islam and people being rescued out of that darkness? At the end of that leash is a choker chain and the devil is gasping for air. And Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, has done that. So there is an enemy who is real. He is on a very, very short leash. He has to ask permission to do anything. And finally, the one who holds the leash has plans of his own. The one who holds the leash has plans of his own. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and I think I quoted Bob Dylan when he returns. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne. He has plans of his own. And you see those plans reflected a bit. It's a bit cryptic, but you see those plans reflected in this passage in verse 33, 34. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, I'm sorry, verse 32, I have prayed for you. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus has plans for Peter. Now, let's just acknowledge, folks, at this point, that we are deep in the weeds of the mysteries of God's providential dealings with his people. Peter has an enemy. You have an enemy. He's on a short leash. At the end of it is a choker chain. He cannot do anything without the permission of the one who possesses all power, all authority, and all wisdom. Jesus has plans for Peter. Jesus, in those plans for Peter, somehow in the mystery of his providence, is using the evil intent, the evil machinations, the evil desires of Satan to accomplish his own greater purpose in Peter's life. And you ask what that is. Well, you get an intimation, maybe it's more than an intimation, but I think you get an intimation of what it is that Jesus is about with Peter and why it is that Jesus would allow Peter to be so assaulted by Satan, so abused by Satan. You get an intimation of what it is that Jesus is about with Peter in verse 33. Lord, Peter says, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. See, this is what Peter's issue is, isn't it? And this is what Jesus is doing with Peter. This is the purpose that Jesus has for Peter Peter thinks he knows himself so well. He thinks he understands things 
so well. He thinks, in fact, that he knows better than Jesus what is the right thing to do. He thinks he knows himself better than Jesus knows him. Let's just rehearse the illustrations. Luke chapter 5, Peter's been out fishing all night. Lord, we haven't caught anything. There are no fish here. You don't fish in shallow water, not in the heat of the day. Jesus knows better than Peter. Jesus says, cast your net on the other side of the boat, right where you are, right now. But Peter knows better. Matthew 16, Lord, this will never happen to you. You will not ever suffer and die. It will not be done. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. In just a few short hours, who is the one who's going to put a da- pull a dagger out of his robe and slice off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest? It's going to be Peter, who doesn't get it, who doesn't get that if Jesus wants to, he can ask his father to send a dozen legions of angels to disperse this crowd with a sneeze. But Peter doesn't get it. Peter knows better. Peter's problem is Peter. His self-reliance, his self-importance, And Jesus knows that Peter must be purged. Jesus knows that Peter must be purged of Peter. All week as I've been thinking about this passage, I say all week, Several times as I've been thinking about this passage, I've thought of the passage in 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 5, where there is a man in the Corinthian church who has his father's wife, whatever that all means. And Paul is astounded at this. I told the folks in the inquirers class when I was first a Christian, I used to hear people say, I want to be part of a church like the New Testament church. Really? You want 1 Corinthians 5? Paul says about that, you people are doing things that even Gentiles don't do. And so he admonishes those folks that they address this thing. Not that they put the guy on the rack, but that they love him, that they discipline him. And if, they don't, if he doesn't respond, then they remove him from the church. And then Paul says, and I for myself... Folks, listen, this is, this is tough. Paul says, I for myself have handed this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, but for the salvation of his soul. You see what's at stake here for Peter? It's his very soul. It's his very life. And Jesus, 
will use any and every means at his disposal. He, the one who possesses all wisdom and all power and all authority in order that he, Jesus, might save Peter from himself. I heard another Dylan song this last week, written 20 years after Slow Train Coming. It's another eschatological song. It's another song that talks about the end of things. And there's one line in the song where he says, kind of in view of that, that hope, I don't know, somewhere in there, Dylan's got some stuff right. In view of that hope, he says, I'm trying to get as far away from myself as I can. You see what Peter's problem is? It's Peter. And you see what Jesus is doing. Jesus will use any means at his disposal. And everything is at his disposal, including the malicious machinations of the evil one who wants Peter destroyed. Jesus will use everything at his disposal in order to purge Peter of Peter. And you notice Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to pray for you that your faith may not fail. Because you see what Jesus so wants for Peter and wants for you and for me is for faith to be a reality. Not something in our cognition, not something we talk about, but what Jesus wants for Peter is that Peter be purged of himself so that his faith is no longer in himself but is transferred more and more and more and more to the only object worthy of that trust, and that is Jesus. And there is a happy ending to this story. It's interesting, the word in the text, verse 32 word that's translated turned in verse 32 is actually a word that is used to describe repentance. Isn't that beautiful? When Peter goes through the misery of his colossal failure and in the interwovenness of things, somehow the devil is involved in it, working his work. But on the other side of it, for Peter, there was repentance, a turning, and a coming back to Jesus. And we will see Jesus restoring Peter. And the promise that Jesus makes here has been fulfilled. See, Jesus has designs for Peter. He has plans for Peter. He has intentions for Peter. That Peter after he passes through this purgative 
tragedy of collapse and denying Jesus and even calling a curse down upon himself and comes out on the other side of it and by God's grace turns and returns and repents and is restored. He, Peter, strengthens his brethren and not just the brethren of his own day. Folks, I am helped by Peter's letters. Jesus knew what he was doing with Peter. And Jesus knew that someday, I think I mentioned this in the first sermon in this series, Jesus knew that someday there'd be a group of people sitting in Vera Beach and they'd be looking at the life of Peter and that look at the life of Peter would strengthen them because they too are under attack. And what they too need to know is that Jesus possesses all power and that Jesus has purposes for them and that there is no power in heaven or on earth that can ever frustrate those purposes. And so the the promise, the promise made to Peter is being fulfilled right now because this brother is being strengthened by watching Peter's life and Jesus' ministry to him. Jesus is the Lord of everything, friends. He is the Lord of your failures. He is the Lord of your failures. He is the Lord of your disappointments. He is the Lord of your weaknesses. He is the Lord of your helplessness. And all of these things are in his hands, as was true with Peter. And all of it, he with his tender hands, is weaving together for your good, for the good of his people, and for his unending glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can rest in this and be confident about it. These are hard things to think about. It's been a lot to take in. But oh, Lord Jesus, by your spirit, press these things into our souls so that we may trust you, rest in you, and know, and know that your good purposes for us will never fail. Enable us to leave resting in that knowledge. We ask in your name. Amen.